I want you all to turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 12. 1 Corinthians chapter 12. We've been working our way through 1 Corinthians. We're entering the home stretch, all right? We've hit all of the the sections that people know, you know, vaguely. And now we are in the sections that everybody knows. Everybody should be like, oh, I know this part. Okay, <laughs> right? 12 through the end, most people will, will know this. Okay, so for most people, 1 Corinthians has about six chapters. Chapter 7, <laughs> right, on marriage. And then chapters 12 uh, through 14 on spiritual gifts. And chapter 15 on the resurrection. Other than that, we don't know nothing about 1 Corinthians. Okay, so we've been trying to work through our way through First Corinthians so that we can help uh, build out our understanding of not only this church, but the church, because Paul's focus in First Corinthians is correcting errors in the church. And in correcting errors in the church, he has been helping us to understand what the church itself is. Amen. So let me read for you all all of 1 Corinthians chapter 12. I'm going to read verse 31 with, uh, with chapter 12, uh, but I think that logically verse 31 is better placed with 1 Corinthians chapter 13, because I think that leads into what Paul is talking about in 1 Corinthians 13. Verse 1, Paul says, Now concerning spiritual gifts, gifts, brothers and sisters, I do not want you to be uninformed. You know that when you were pagans, you were enticed and led astray to idols that could not speak. Therefore, I want you to understand that no one speaking by the Holy Spirit of God ever says, let Jesus be cursed. And no one can say Jesus is Lord except by the Holy Spirit. Now there are varieties of gifts, but the same spirit, and there are varieties of services, but the same Lord, and there are varieties of activities, but it is the, it is the same God who activates all of them in every one. To each is given the manifestation of the spirit for the common good. To one is given through the spirit the utterance of wisdom, and to another the utterance of knowledge according to the same spirit. To another, faith by the same spirit. To another, gifts of healing by the one spirit. To another, the working of miracles. To another, prophecy. To another, discernment of spirits. To another, various kinds of tongues. To another, the interpretation of tongues. All these are activated by one and the same spirit who allots to each one individually just as the spirit chooses. For just as the body is one and has many members, in all the members of the body, though many are one body, so it is with Christ. For in the one spirit, we were all baptized into one body, Jews or Greeks, slaves or free, and we were all made to drink of one spirit. Indeed, the body does not consist of one member, but of many. If the foot would say, because I'm not a hand, I do not belong to the body, that would not make it any less a part of the body. And if the ear would say, because I'm not an ear, I do not belong to the body, that would not make it any less a part of the body. 
If the whole body were an eye, where would the hearing be? If the whole body were hearing, where would the sense of smell be? But as it is, God arranged the members in the body, each one of them as he chose. If all were a single member, where would the body be? As it is, there are many members, yet one body. The eye cannot say to the hand, I have no need of you, nor again the head to the foot, I have no need of you. On the contrary, the members of the body that seem to be weaker are indispensable, and those members of the body that we think less honorable we clothed with greater honor, and our less respectable members are treated with greater respect, whereas our more respectable members do not need this. But God has so arranged the body giving the greater honor to the inferior member, that there may be no dissension within the body, but the members may have the same care for one another. If one member suffers, all suffer together with it. If one member is honored, all rejoice together with it. Now you are the body of Christ and individually members of it. And God has appointed in the church first apostles, second prophets, third teachers, then deeds of power, then gifts of healing, forms of assistance, forms of leadership, various kinds of tongues. Are all apostles? Are all prophets? Are all teachers? Do all work miracles? Do all possess gifts of healing? Do all speak in tongues? Do all interpret? But strive for the greater gifts, and I will show you a still more excellent way. Let's pray. Father, we thank you again for this time to come around your word. I pray that you would open our hearts and our minds, give us wisdom, knowledge, and understanding concerning you and concerning your word. I pray, Lord, that uh, as we walk our way through 1 Corinthians today, I pray that you would help us to see how you have designed the body, uh, not only to, to um, express um, our individuality, but you have designed the body in such a way that our unity is a manifestation of the Spirit. I pray that you would uh, help us to understand all of these things, and more importantly, I pray that you would teach us to apply these things in our lives. Amen. Amen. Today, just a very simple topic from 1 Corinthians chapter 12, showing the Spirit. It is an amazing thing raising children, especially raising teenagers. Now, I say that after only raising a teenager for two months. <laughs> they know everything and they know nothing. Or better yet, I should say, they know everything because they know nothing. Okay. <laughs> All right. <laughs> okay. okay. Immaturity is a beautiful thing. <laughs> Immaturity is a beautiful thing. It allows you to know things that you have never actually studied. It allows you to think you and your friends know way more about the world than your parents. It allows you to see the world in a very flat, linear way instead of being able to see all of the nuances of life. Now, it's funny, uh, I, I remember telling someone this uh, about myself 
when I graduated from seminary in 2006, and I, I was telling someone, after graduating from seminary at 26, I know a lot less than I did when I started at 20. In my first year in Bible college, I knew everything. I had it all figured out. I, I, I knew exactly where, what, why other pastors was wrong. I had all of the doctrines figured out. And by the time I graduated at 26, I was like, man, I know a lot less now than I knew at 20. And now that I'm 40, I know a lot less at 40 than I knew <laughs> at 20. Right? Because when you grow and learn new things, you realize there's so much information out there that I only know this much. Okay. But children don't have that luxury of understanding things. Okay. I promise you, a quarter of my car rides are filled with listening to the idea of children and then after discussions being told, you guys just don't understand. <laughs> and then another quarter of my car rides are filled with me trying to explain where they just don't understand the real world. Okay. And sadly, I still don't get through. <laughs> because immaturity does not allow us to see our circumstances fully or correctly. We, we only are able to see things from our perspective, and oftentimes our perspective is based on limited understanding. In my mind, this is exactly what Paul is doing in 1 Corinthians. Paul is addressing issues in the Corinthian church that has been created by immature people who see themselves as spiritually mature. Okay, remember, we, we talked about all of these issues in 1 Corinthians. They thought that they were very mature people, but their maturity was causing divisions in the church. In chapters 1 through 4, Paul addresses divisions in the church due to people thinking that they were more mature based on which clique they were a part of. In chapter 5, Paul addresses the arrogance of the church because they thought their tolerance of sexual immorality was a mark of their spiritual maturity. In chapter 6, Paul addressed Christians taking one another to, to court and other members frequenting the temple prostitutes. <laughs> in chapter 7, Paul addresses the topic of marriage, including the idea that celibacy in marriage somehow makes you more spiritual. In chapters 8 through 10, Paul addresses several issues, but mostly these chapters are about idolatry within the church and thinking that somehow you are more, you're so spiritually mature that you can engage in idol worship and it's not a problem. And lastly, in chapter 11, <clears throat> last week, we saw Paul addressing abuses related to the Lord's Supper. I would argue in each case that the sin or conflict in the church is a symptom of spiritual immaturity being masked as spiritual maturity. They thought that they were so mature that the conflicts or problems in the church had nothing to do with them, but the other people who were not like them. 
Now, <clears throat> I would also argue that the same issue is being addressed in 1 Corinthians chapters 12 through 14. Remember I told you that 1 Corinthians chapters 12 through 14 is actually one section, okay? It's addressing the same topic, and that is the topic of spiritual gifts. Some people believed, as many as of us believe, that those with the better gifts, okay, we know what the better gifts are, okay, the, the, the miraculous gifts, right, speaking in tongues, prophecy, things like that, they thought that those with the better gifts are somehow more spiritual or more mature, mature because they have the better gifts. And they felt that because they possessed these better gifts, that they had more of the Holy Spirit than everyone else. Their immaturity and ours caused them and causes us to flaunt our spiritual gifts like it's a Boy Scouts merit badge. <laughs> they, they thought that by exercising these gifts that they were demonstrating that they were closer to God or had more of the Holy Spirit than everyone else. Their immaturity was dividing the church on this issue, so Paul wrote to correct their misunderstanding on spiritual gifts, the Holy Spirit, and the church. And so what Paul does, starting in chapter 12, he's laying out the issue. He is, as I showed us before in all of the other chapters, Paul lays out the mentality how we are supposed to think about one another, how we're supposed to think about the Holy Spirit, how we are supposed to think about the church. And then he moves from there to help us understand how that applies in everyday interactions. OK, so we'll we'll see that as we work our way through First Corinthians 12 through 13. I'm not going to take the time on Sunday to go through each of the spiritual gifts and explain what each gift is. I'll, like I said, Wednesday, I'll do that on Bible study. So in Bible study, we'll uh, go through each one of the gifts, what the gift is, um, and I'll answer questions, you know, that, that, that you may have. But on Sunday, I'm just going to work my way through the passages themselves and not take the time to go through each one of the individual gifts. Right. <clears throat> so a couple things I want us to see here in this passage. The first thing I want us to see is every Christian possesses the Holy Spirit. Every Christian possesses the Holy Spirit. Listen to what Paul says in verses one, two, and three. Sometimes we think that Paul is trying to give us a formula here on um, who is a Christian or how to recognize, um, you know, false, you know, um, professions of faith. But I think what Paul is trying to help us to see here is who has the Holy Spirit and who does not have the Holy Spirit? He says, concerning spiritual gifts, brothers and sisters, I do not want you to be uninformed. You know that when you were pagans, you were enticed and led astray by idols that could not speak. Therefore, I want you to understand that no one speaking by the Spirit of God ever says, Jesus be cursed. And no one can say, Jesus is Lord, except by the Holy Spirit. Now, again, remember the, the context here is the Corinthian church thinking that some people have the spirit and some don't. Or some people have more of the spirit and others don't. So when Paul says that no one can ever say who has the spirit can say Jesus is cursed and no one can say that Jesus is Lord except by the spirit. 
Paul is making categorical, categorical statements. He's saying, if you think that Jesus is cursed, then you do not possess the spirit. You are not a Christian. But if you have accepted the fact that Jesus is Lord, you have you must possess the spirit because only the spirit can have someone say that or believe that. Right. And we can think of Romans chapter eight. Right. Where Paul says that we cry out, Abba, Father, because of the spirit within us. Right. The only reason we call God our father is because we possess his spirit. Some denominations, um, even to this day, um, teach that not all believers possess the Holy Spirit, right? They believe that, that, that the, at the moment of salvation, you don't always receive the Spirit, but at subsequent times in your relationship that you do receive the Spirit, okay? Now, listen to what Paul says here. I want you to turn to Ephesians chapter 1, because this is the whole hinge that Paul's argument is, is, is turning on. Okay. Paul's whole point is everyone who trusts in Jesus possesses the spirit. Okay. Um, and then we'll look at the, the fact that every person that possess, that possesses the spirit possesses him equally. Okay. First Ephesians chapter one, Ephesians chapter one. to verse 14 of your salvation and had believed in him were marked with the seal of the promised Holy Spirit. This is the pledge of our inheritance toward redemption as God's own people to the praise of his glory. Notice what Paul says here, especially in verse 13. In verse 13, Paul says, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, when you heard it and had believed, when you heard it and believed, you were marked with the seal of the Holy Spirit. The moment you believed, you were marked, you were sealed by the Holy Spirit. And he says that this seal, the Holy Spirit himself, is the pledge of our inheritance. Now, this word pledge is very interesting here. Uh, in New Testament times, uh, the word meant a down payment. Okay, so for example, um, I, I used this example before. You all know how uh, parents used to do it. They would take you to like Value City or somewhere, and you would, they would, oh, get what you want. And they, you throw a whole bunch of stuff in the cart. And then you get to the register, you know, they were like, are we putting this on a layaway? <laughs> right? And so, so the whole idea behind layaway is the people would take your items, you would put down a deposit or a down payment or a pledge, meaning that on a certain date, I'm going to come and get all of the rest of my stuff, right? Now, in modern times, in modern Greek, the word pledge is the word for a wedding ring, right? And the idea behind a wedding ring is the same thing. The idea is I'm claiming this finger for myself and on a set date, I'm going to come get the rest of you. <laughs> okay. Right. Paul is saying that is what the Holy Spirit is to us when we believe. Because you believe, 
God seals you by giving you his spirit. And the fact that you possess the Holy Spirit is proof. It is a guarantee that on a later date, God is going to come and receive you to himself. That is what he means by this, by redemption. He's going to redeem you. He's going to purchase you fully and completely for himself on the day of redemption. But he is going to do that. It is certain. It is a guarantee because you possess the spirit. Anyone see that? I want you to turn to Romans chapter 8. Romans chapter 8. Back to your left. Romans chapter 8. I'm going to look at verses 1 through 9 real quick. The context, of course, with Romans chapter 8 is Romans chapter 6 and 7. Okay? In Romans chapter 6, Paul is addressing the, the standard that God has set. Okay, In verse 1, he says, Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? And Paul says, No, we should not live a, a consistent lifestyle of sin because Christ died for us, right? And, and for all of us, we'll say, yep, I got that. I understand that. Now, when Paul gets to Romans chapter 6, verse 15, he says, shall we sin? And in Greek, he's very emphatic. Shall we sin every, that's, should we sin every once in a while? And to most of us, we're like, hmm, I got to think about that. <laughs> okay. Paul says, no, no, you shouldn't even sin every once in a while. Because every single time we submit ourselves to sin, we become slaves of sin. And then we have to struggle to try to get ourselves free. Then we get to Romans chapter 7, and Paul says, When I would do good, evil is present with me. Right. I, I, I want to obey God. I want to follow his law in my inward man. But but my flesh, it drags me astray so that even when I want to do the right thing, I always end up not finding the ability to do what I know is right. And by the time he gets to the end of chapter seven, he says, oh, wretched man that I am. Who is going to deliver me from the body of this death? Paul is spiraling downhill spiritually because he recognizes that the struggle that he has. He recognizes that he is not able to break his bondage to sin. Now, when he gets to chapter eight, we find hope. That even though God has set a high standard because he wants us to be holy because he is holy. And then in chapter seven, we recognize that we can never meet that standard there is no reason to feel condemned because we have hope. Verse chapter eight, verse one. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ. For because the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus has set me free from the law of sin and of death. For God has done what the law weakened through the flesh could not do by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and to deal with sin he condemned sin in the flesh so that the just requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us us who walk not according to the flesh 
but according to the spirit. For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh, but those who live according to the spirit set their minds on the things of the spirit. To set the mind on the flesh is death, but to set the mind on the spirit is life and peace. For this reason, the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God. It does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. And those who are in the flesh cannot please God. Real quick, I want you to see what, what Paul's point is. He says that the flesh has been weakened because of sin. We cannot keep God's law and therefore merit salvation. But God, under, knowing that, what he did was he sent his son to die on the cross for our sins. And through Jesus's death on the cross, he dealt with sin. He condemned sin in his flesh. Now, those who walk according to the spirit, those people have the requirement of the law, perfect 100 percent righteousness that has already been fulfilled in them because they possess the spirit. OK, everybody see that? You don't have to go about trying to to live 100 percent righteous in order to please God and get saved because that has already been accomplished in you. And the proof is because you possess God's spirit. Now, listen to what he says in verse nine. Right. Because some people will say, well, I don't I don't know if I don't know if I always walk in the spirit. Maybe sometimes I'm walking in the flesh. I I, I just don't know. Maybe I don't possess the Holy Spirit. I, I, I don't know. Listen to what Paul says in verse nine. He says, you are not in the flesh. OK, I'm not going to take time to go a- explain uh, the genitives here in the, in the passage. To be in the flesh is to be unsaved. <laughs> to be in the spirit is to be saved. OK, that's just uh, the brief synopsis of it. Listen, to it. he says, you are not in the flesh. You are in the spirit since The spirit of God dwells in you. Anyone who does not have the spirit of Christ does not belong to him. If you possess the spirit, you are saved. You belong to Christ. If you do not possess the spirit, you are not saved and you do not belong to Christ. Every single person that puts their trust in Christ, the moment they trust Christ, they receive the spirit. And because you receive the spirit, everything that Jesus accomplished on the cross is applied to you the moment the spirit enters your life. Everyone see that. Now we could go to Ephesians chapter four and show that you are sealed the moment you believe. And that seal is not broken until the day you reach heaven. <laughs> okay. okay, but I'm, I'm, over my, I'm about to be over my time. We're going to keep it moving. <laughs> All right. What I want us to see here, you can turn back to 1 Corinthians chapter 12. The reason I'm, I'm, I'm taking my time here is because I think that since the, the time of the original church, right, the first century, the church has always struggled with this, right? Who, who possessed the spirit, right? Can you have more or less of the spirit? Um, you know, is possessing more of the spirit in some sense more make does that make you more spiritual? Uh, the church has wrestled with these things. And Paul is trying to help us to understand 
that first, every single Christian possesses the Holy Spirit. And what I would argue, I think that that we see not only in First Corinthians chapter 12, but throughout all of, uh, of Scripture, that you cannot possess more or less of the Holy Spirit. Okay, it's, it's not like the closer you get to God, you get more of the Holy Spirit. Okay, right. You get all of the Holy Spirit, all of him, the moment you are saved. Now, the, there is, it is a different question. Does he possess all of you? <laughs> okay. Because at, at, at times, the Holy Spirit has more of my heart than, he de- than at other times, right? At other times, politics has more of my heart. Or sports center. Or, you know, other things, okay? But the moment you are saved, you receive all of the Holy Spirit that you will ever, ever, ever receive. Okay. The second thing I want you to see in 1 Corinthians chapter um, 12 is that spiritual gifts are a demonstration of the Holy Spirit at work in the church and in the individual believer. Spiritual gifts are a demonstration of the Holy Spirit at work in the church and in the individual believer. And we'll see this from verses 4 through 11. Okay, I'm not going to reread <clears throat> all of those things. First thing um, I want you to see uh, under this section is spiritual gifts are a Trinitarian gift. Okay, they come from all three members of the Trinity, all three members of the Trinity. Verse four, there are a variety of gifts, but the same spirit. There are a variety of services, but the same Lord. There are a variety of activities, but it is the same God who activates all of them in everyone. Okay, so so the entire Trinity, the Father, the Son, and the Spirit are all involved in this, uh, uh, um, the issue of spiritual gifts. However, it is primarily the Holy Spirit's role to handle the spiritual gifts. Okay, and what we see that all throughout um, these verses. But particularly, look at what verse 7 says. It says, to each is given, what? The manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. Okay? So, although the entire Trinity is involved, this is something that really falls under the purview of the Holy Spirit. So, for example, we know that, you know, God the Father it is his plan in creation, all of the things that's taking place that he is, um, is doing for salvation. But God the Father didn't get up on the cross and die for us. <laughs> okay. It was God the Son who died on the cross to secure our salvation. Right. But then Jesus tells his disciples, I'm going away. <laughs> and it's good for you that I'm going away because I'm going to send you another comforter right? Someone like myself, I'm going to send him so that he can be with you and he can be in you. So now that Jesus has gone back to the Father, it is the Holy Spirit who now comes into the world in order to live inside believers and to empower us to live the life that pleases God. So everything 
that Jesus accomplished on the cross for us, it is applied to us by the Holy Spirit. And it is the same with spiritual gifts. It is the Holy Spirit who is delegating the spiritual gifts to us. And the presence of spiritual gifts is proof that the Holy Spirit is operating among us. Spiritual gifts are a manifestation of the Spirit. Everyone sees that. Now, Paul tells us the reason for the spiritual gifts. Not only are they a manifestation of the Spirit, right? He tells us why the Holy Spirit gives these gifts. The Holy Spirit does not give spiritual gifts for personal edification. He does not give spiritual gifts for personal edification. He does not give spiritual gifts as validation for spiritual maturity. Verse 7 says he gives spiritual gifts for one purpose, and that purpose is the benefit of all, the common good, or better translation is for the benefit of all. Why does the Holy Spirit manifest himself in the church? To benefit everybody in the church. Why does he give the list of gifts that, that he gives in verses 8 through 11? Um, eight through 11? Why, why does he give these gifts? He doesn't give it to us so that we can feel personally edified. Right? I just feel so good when the Holy Spirit is using me. <laughs> He, he, he doesn't he doesn't give spiritual gifts so that we can think, wow, I'm, I'm, I must be growing spiritually because the spirit is using me. That's that's not why he uses, gives spiritual gifts. He gives spiritual gifts so that you can be a blessing to the body of Christ. And notice everyone is given a manifestation of the spirit in order to benefit the other men, members of the body, not in indi- certain individuals. Not the most mature among us. Everyone is given a spiritual gift and everyone has the responsibility to exercise that gift for the benefit of all. We will see this again in first Corinthians chapter 14. And again, just a side note. um, This is why uh, Paul and others say consistently throughout scripture that it is important for us to consistently gather. Because. When we, look, we looked in, 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 in on Bible study the other day, we, we saw that all of the passages that talk about spiritual gift, Paul uses the phrase, to each individual, grace has been given. Okay. So every single one of us has p- been given a specific grace that is meant to build up the body. And when we aren't consistently gathering, we cannot use that grace to benefit others and we cannot be benefited by the grace given to others. We have to mutually come together in order for us to grow individually. That is how God designed the body. Second thing I want us to see is down in verse 11 under this section is you don't get to choose your own spiritual gift. Now, it's interesting that <laughs> the passage says this, because if we got to choose our spiritual gift, everybody would either be an apostle or a prophet or a pastor teacher or an evangelist. 
everybody would speak in tongues or interpret tongues, <laughs> right? Nobody would have the gift of helps, <laughs> right, right, <laughs> right? <laughs> it was just like, no, nah, I'm just, God didn't call me to vacuum floors. That's not my spiritual gift, okay? right? Everybody would have the flashy gifts. But notice what verse 11 says. It says, all these are activated by one and the same spirit who allots to each one individually just as the spirit chooses, right? And if we look at verses 7 through 10, it says you were given it by the spirit, by the spirit, by the spirit, by the spirit, given prophecy by the spirit, you're given the gift of helps by the spirit, you were give, given the gift of leadership by the spirit. Okay. So the Holy Spirit picks and chooses what spiritual gift you have. Because again, like I said in Bible study on Wednesday, a spiritual gift is just a, 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 um, the Bible's way of telling us the function or role the spirit wants us to play in the, in the body. Okay. That's all the spiritual gift is. What, does the, what role does the Holy Spirit want us to play in the body? So the Holy Spirit picks our gifts. We don't get to pick our own gifts because the body would be very lopsided. We would have a lot of heads, a lot of hands, a lot of eyes, but no feet. Nobody wants to be the stinky part inside the shoe, okay? <laughs> so Paul is trying to help us to see Everyone possesses the spirit. Everyone possesses the spirit equally. And he also wants us to see that it is the spirit who chooses the gift that each person has. Okay. Now we'll talk about this again, like I said uh, on Wednesday, uh, about whether or not the gifts are static, meaning that you, you get one or more gifts, the moment of salvation, and that's all you get, right? You have the same gift uh, um, until you die. Or if the gifts are dynamic, meaning that the Holy Spirit can use any person he chooses at any moment with any gift. OK, we'll, we'll talk about that more in uh, in Bible study. But suffice it to say at this point that it is the Holy Spirit who chooses what gift each person has. Okay. The third major point I want us to, to, uh, to see here <clears throat> is. Spiritual immaturity concerning spiritual gifts will divide the body of Christ. Spiritual immaturity concerning spiritual gifts will divide the body of Christ. Now, and we, we see this in verses 12 through 30. Now, there's a lot of talk about, you know, charismatics versus non-charismatics and, you know, uh, mainline denominations versus this denomination. And, 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 and I think that we get too caught up in, you know, titles or, or viewpoints and, you know, should we speak in tongues? Should you not speak in tongues? And, and, and again, I don't think that that's the point of Paul's, <laughs> that that's not the point of any of these chapters. Okay. Chapter 12, 13 and 14 has nothing to do with any of those chapters. Paul's whole point is you should not let your viewpoint on spiritual gifts divide the body. Right? Take whatever position you want to take, but you should not divide the body of Christ based on your viewpoint of spiritual gifts. Now, the first thing under this point that I want us to see 
is, you know, I'm giving you a whole bunch of points. Y'all be like, I don't know what point we want. Just, just put dots. <laughs> Listen, here I want us to see first. And you could take this. I'm not going to take the time because I only got four minutes. Count how many times the um, the word, the adjective one is used in First Corinthians chapter 12. How many times did he, does he use the adjective one? One God, one spirit, one body. Okay. He uses the word one repeatedly because he's trying to convey to us the idea of unity, the idea of oneness. Okay. Above everything, we need to do everything if we want to bring in Ephesians chapter 4. We have to endeavor to keep the unity of the spirit in the bond of peace, right? No, no matter what you do, you got to put forth a lot of effort to make sure that you do not divide what the Holy Spirit has brought together. The second thing I think Paul is trying to, to say to us in these verses is he is trying to convey to us the idea of unity by using one of his, you know, uh, most famous metaphors, and that is the metaphor of the body. Okay. Now, think about this. This is the mindset that Paul is trying to, to, to develop in us. He's trying to tell us that disunity or disharmony within the church or the mistreatment of fellow members is unthinkable because we are all members of the same body. You don't just randomly walk around with hammers banging your fingers when you get mad. Why? Because you're not just hurting your finger. <laughs> you're hurting yourself. Listen to what Paul says. Verse 12. For just as the body is one and has many members and all the members of the body, though many are one body, so it is with Christ. For in the one spirit, we were all baptized into one body, Jews or Greeks, slaves or free. And we were all made to drink of one spirit. He says, just like you have one body and that one body is made up of many members. You have your head, you have ears, eyes, you know, nose, mouth, fingers, toes, arms, legs, right? You, you, you have one body, but that one body is made up of many members. And he says, it is the same way with Christ. There is only one body of Christ. There's only one church, but the church is made up of all individual members. And notice what he says about all of these members in verse 13. He says all of these members were baptized into one body. Okay. Now there's a debate. Is he talking about spirit baptism? Is he talking about water baptism? I think that he's more um, referring to the baptism of the spirit, right? Which means that you were placed in the body of Christ by the Holy Spirit. And he says, we were all made to drink of one spirit. This, the word drink here um, of one spirit literally means to be flooded. You were flooded with the same spirit. <laughs> right? So you all have the Holy Spirit and you have all of the Holy Spirit. It's Paul's point, right? You all are members of the same body. You possess the same spirit. You were baptized by the same spirit. You are one, is his point. 
Now, if we are to adopt that mindset that we are one body, but many members, right? Disunity and disharmony, right? And mistreatment of one another, that can't be true. It should not be true of us. Let me say that, <laughs> right? It shouldn't be true of us. Because you can't hurt one member of your body and think the rest of the body won't feel it. Now, I'm almost done. I want us to, um, to see what Paul is, is trying to say using this body metaphor. Okay. Two things I think Paul is, is trying to communicate here with this body metaphor. The first is in verses 14 through 18. He's telling us that members with lesser gifts, okay, the gift of helps, the, the, the non-miraculous gifts, okay, the, the members with lesser gifts should not separate from those with better gifts. Listen to what he says in verse 14. Indeed, the body does not consist of one member, but of many. If the foot would say, because I am not a hand, I do not belong to the body, that would not make it any less part of the body. And if the ear would say, because I am not an eye, I do not belong to the body, that would not make it any less part of the body. If the whole body were an eye, where would the hearing be? If the whole body were, an, were hearing, where would the sense of smell be? But as it is, God arranged the members in the body, each one of them as he chose. Notice there are people who say, well, I'm just irrelevant. I'm, I'm only an usher. I mean, I'm not, I'm not that, I don't play a big role in the body. Right? I'm, I'm, I'm not that, I'm just a foot. I mean, I'm not a visible person. I just sit in the back, you know, open the door for people, greet them as they come in. Right. And so we think that because we have a a lesser gift or we play a lesser role, a lesser role. Again, I'm using air quotes because there's no such thing. Okay. Um, That we are not important to the body. We're we're dispensable. And Paul is trying to help us to see that every single person in the body is necessary hands are great you can make things you can break things you can give out money to people but if you can't walk to the person that needs help you can't give it to them right every nobody wants to clean the bathrooms in church but i promise you everybody wants to be the pastor but I promise you, it don't matter how much y'all like me teaching the Bible. If y'all come in here every Sunday and no one has cleaned them bathrooms, you'd be like, mm, we might want to switch churches. <laughs> okay. Or you're going to hold it the whole time. Either way, you're going to be distracted. <laughs> okay. <laughs> okay. Right. Because every part of the body is necessary. If one part of the body is not operating properly, it harms the whole body. You see that? The second thing Paul is what I think Paul wants us to see in verses 19 through 26 is that members with the better gifts shouldn't look down on those with the lesser gifts. Don't look down on people with lesser gifts. Listen to what he says, verse 19. If all were a single member, where would the body be? 
As it is, there are many members, yet one body. The eye cannot say to the hand, I have no need of you, nor again the head to the foot, I have no need of you. On the contrary, the members of the body that seem to be weaker are indispensable. And those members of the body that we think less honorable, we clothed with greater honor. Our less respectable members are treated with greater respect. Paul's point is, you may be the best singer, but you always need somebody to back you up. Okay, <laughs> You could be the great, greatest preacher, but you can't do everything. Okay, You notice that the people who are the, the greatest preachers have no administrative skills whatsoever. It's like you could preach, but you can't manage. You can't manage. You couldn't manage to keep the church open. <laughs> right? I, just, I never get it. I'm like, God is so hilarious in how he distributes gifts. So that you you can be the greatest preacher, but you can't do everything. Okay. God has designed the body in such a way that we all need one another. And because you have one of the better gifts, you can't look down on people because they don't sing like me. They don't they don't they don't preach like me. They haven't been invited to speak at conferences every month like me. <laughs> okay. We all need one another. Paul goes as far as to say that the weaker parts of the body deserve more honor and respect than the better parts of the body. Paul is trying to tell us that we all equally possess the Holy Spirit and we all equally manifest his presence when we come together and use the gifts that he has given us. Now, the last thing that Paul says here in verse 30 is this. He says, strive for the greater gifts, and I will show you a more excellent way. He's trying to help us to see, he says, you know, can everybody be an apostle? I mean, the answer to all these questions is no. Are all apostles, are all prophets, do all teach? Do all heal? Right. The answer is no. Like we, we all cannot have the same gift. Now, I have been to a church and it, it amazes me. I went to a church and every single member of the church was a minister. I'm just like, man, that is. That's powerful right there. I'm like, who are y'all serving? <laughs> is everybody a minister like where the members at? Right. So but listen, Paul's point is like we all can't have the same gifts. Right. Right. We, 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 we all we, we there has to be diversity in the body. Now, he says you can can strive for the better gifts. You could chase after the better gifts. OK, now, of course, there's two interpretations of it. One interpretation, Paul is telling them to to, you know, clamor for the best gifts. Um, you know, the other interpretation is Paul is saying that that is what they're doing, but that is not the proper way. OK, I think there's validity to both of those arguments. But I think, you know, uh, I think the greater weight lies on Paul saying that that is what they are doing, but there is a better way. There's a better way than to chase after having the better gifts. And that way is the gift, I mean, is the way of love. Okay. And so when we, we look at this, we'll, we'll jump into this next Sunday. Paul's whole point is it doesn't really matter what gift you have if you're not exercising it in love you're wasting your time anyway, <laughs> right? 
you, you can have the gift of prophecy, but if your gift of prophecy is not attached to the gift of to, to, to the, the spiritual, I mean, the mm, fruit of the spirit, love. Right. It's just empty noise. Right. So what he's saying is. You can pursue the greatest gifts, right? He, he even gets to the point in first Corinthians chapter 14. He says, I wish that all of you all prophesied. <laughs> I wish all of you all spoke in tongues. OK, that I don't have a problem with you exercising the gifts, but make sure it is being done for the right reason in the right way. It has to be done through love. And he says in chapter 14, it must be done in decency and in order. Right. We shouldn't disrupt the church just because we want to exercise our spiritual gift. Now, we're going to continue working our way through this. Again, I said in, in Bible study, we'll spend our time looking at each individual gift. What is that particular gift? Because um, last week we had a lot of questions. Well, how do I know what my gift is and, and all of that? So we'll, we'll work on, the, on those more practical questions in Bible study. Um, but here I want us to focus on looking at what, does the, what, it, what is Paul's point of the passage? The point of his passage is not to say, hey, you get this gift, you got this gift. You know, it's not an Oprah moment. You know, you get a tongue, you get a, <laughs> get a tongue, right? That's not one of those moments, right? That's not Paul's point, okay? Um, his, his point really is, and, and I don't even think that the spiritual gifts are limited to the things that are listed in the text, right? He's just giving us examples of things that you can do to edify the body, right? But his point is, Whatever your gift is, don't divide the church. Let's pray. Father, we thank you today for all that you have done for us. We thank you, Holy Spirit, because you brought uh, the, the whole church into existence. You bring each church into existence and you sustain us by your power. We thank you, Lord, that Oftentimes, you show your presence among us using spiritual gifts. And that way we know that the living God is among us. Lord, I pray that you would help us to focus on uh, finding out what gift we have, meaning what role you want us to play in the body. But I pray that you would, would help us to never allow us to use our gifts as a way to divide the body. Help us not to use it as a way to look down on other people or to even look down on ourselves by saying, well, the Holy Spirit didn't give me an important thing, so I'm a nobody. Help us to see that we all are important and that none of us can accomplish the mission of glorifying the King of Kings and Lord of Lords on our own. We need one another. Help us to see that the greatest preachers cannot save the whole world without ushers and administrators and singers and people to clean the bathrooms and security. And, and, and all of these, all of us have to work together in order to accomplish the mission of bringing your kingdom on this earth. I pray, God, that you will help us to see how important the unity of the spirit is and help us to fight with every fiber of our being to maintain the unity of the spirit because you jesus said that the world will come to know that you have been sent by the father by the way we show love to one another 
I pray, Lord, that you would help us to exercise every single gift that you've given us. But I pray, Lord, that we would never do it, you know, to shine a light on ourselves. Because you are the only one deserve that glory. We thank you for all that you have done for us. We thank you uh, for, for bringing us together as a body. And we pray, Lord, that you would continue to manifest yourself among us so that people in this community will know that the true and living God is here with his people. We thank you for all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Amen.